Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. Families of hostages in Gaza who weren't released during the four-day truce get a new ray of hope after truce extension talks. The Hamas terror group releases more hostages. Who are they and what was their captivity like? Elon Musk meets with Israel's president amid accusations and denials of anti-Semitism. Hear more about a deal Israel says it made with Musk. Federal Judge Tanya Chutkin rejects former President Trump's motion to subpoena records from the January 6th committee, calling it a fishing expedition. And we'll tell you about another court rejection in Rhode Island that Trump's campaign touts as a victory. Unexplained death cases reported from China. Is COVID-19 back? The country now grappling with a mysterious pneumonia outbreak resulting in fatigue, fever and alleged fatalities. A rally calling for freedom in China held in New York City. Activists commemorating the one-year anniversary of the white paper movement. And Amazon is set to surpass some of the top delivery businesses in the U.S. Find out more as we sit down with the host of Entity Business. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, November 28th. And today is also the fifth day of the truce in um, Israel and the Hamas war. And it, I saw that the Gazans actually had some opportunity to take the kids to the beach. Some did some fishing for food. And of course, there's more Israeli families that are being reunited. And I'm just sure that's such a, even for us, it feels like a sigh of a breath of relief, right? Yeah, such relief after the treachery that they've been through. And let's not forget that taking hostages like Hamas is doing here in a conflict is certainly a war crime. And that's according to the Geneva Convention and the statute of the International Criminal Court. Right. I'm sure there is uh, no shortage of that here. And um, this is actually also where we start today. Uh, this is our top news of Israel and Hamas having agreed to a two-day extension of the temporary truce in the Gaza Strip. Israel says Hamas will release 10 more hostages each day over the next two days under the agreement. Israeli officials have notified families whose relatives are on a list of hostages to be released today. The deal also allows more aid to flow into Gaza. An Israeli spokesperson stated that before the latest releases, there were 184 hostages in Gaza. These included 14 foreigners and 80 Israelis with dual nationality. Israel says it will continue to eliminate Hamas with full force. That's after it becomes evident that no more hostages will be released under the present agreement. A senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said the release of three-year-old twins highlights the disturbing nature of the enemy Israel is facing. He added that Hamas could determine the duration of the humanitarian pause by releasing 10 hostages daily. He says putting pressure on them to continue releasing hostages will ensure the pause continues. Watch. The fear that Hamas has of Israel resuming combat actually is an incentive for them to continue with the pause because they know that when Israel goes back to the campaign against Hamas, we'll be destroying their military infrastructure, we'll be uh, uh, taking out and eliminating their senior leadership, uh, their senior command. They will be on the receiving end of massive blows from the IDF. And that motivates them 
now to keep this time out, this humanitarian pause to go longer. So actually the two goals of destroying Hamas militarily and at the same time getting hostages out, they complement each other. No American hostages were released from Gaza yesterday. Two American women abducted by Hamas terrorists on October 7th were not among those freed. The White House previously said three Americans were expected to be among the 50 hostages that Hamas would release during the four-day pause. Only one, four-year-old Abigail Idan, has been freed. With the truce extended two more days, the White House says there is still a chance the two women could be released on Tuesday or Wednesday. NSC spokesman John Kirby says Hamas will benefit from the pause on fighting and restock and rearm. He says that's a risk Israel and others are willing to take to get hostages freed. Kirby says between seven and nine Americans are still held hostage in Gaza, but the exact number is not known. We do believe that the majority of the ones that are left and we believe held hostage are males. Um, and right now, Hamas is only willing to release women and children. So it could be some time here before we can uh, start to see progress on the other hostages. So continuing with coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, Hamas released 11 Israeli hostages yesterday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on who they are and the conditions they endured. The 11 released were women and children kidnapped from kibbutz near Oz. All have dual citizenship, according to Qatar officials. Mom Sharon Aloni Cunio and her three-year-old twins, Emma and Yuli, were among those who gained their freedom. But the twins' dad, David, is still believed to be in Gaza. Karina Engelbert and her two daughters were released as well. The girl's dad, Ronan, is also reportedly still being held captive in Gaza. Twelve-year-old Etan was separated from his mom and sisters, who escaped the terrorists on October 7th, managing to hide in a field. The dual French and Israeli citizen's dad is still believed to be in Gaza, but was shot by terrorists in the leg and arm on October 7th. Twelve-year-old Erez and his 16-year-old sister Sahar were also freed. Brothers Or and Yagil Yaakov made it to safety as well. Monday's release of hostages brings the number released by the Hamas terror group to 69 over the first four days of the truce. This uncle's 13-year-old niece, Ila, was among those recently released by the terror group. He says it was a great relief to see she can communicate, smile, that she's not outwardly injured. She's a little bit distant now. She's a little bit cold. Uh, she talks about things that happen like it's in third person, like it happened to someone else. Uh, she say she saw horrible things, but she say it with a straight face. Um, it's like she's describing a scene from a movie. His sister Raya, Ila's mom, should have been released also, but is still a Hamas prisoner. The agreement between Hamas and Israel says that you don't separate kids from their parents, and Hamas just ignored that. Four of Shira Havron's family members were murdered by Hamas terrorists seven of them taken hostage, six have since been freed. It's not over at all. We can't celebrate and we can't move on with our lives until everyone is back. It's, it's a constant fight. Others released include sibling 17-year-old Noam and 13-year-old Alma, who dreamed of being reunited with their mother. Their joy at release was quickly crushed by bad news. Their mom, murdered on October 7th by Hamas terrorists during the brutal attacks on their community.
Russian-Israeli hostage Roni Kriboy had a rocky road to his release. He managed to escape after the building he was being held in was bombed, but he was recaptured by Gaza residents and returned to the terrorists before being finally released on Sunday. His release was not officially part of the hostages for prisoners deal between Israel and Hamas. Hamas credited Kriboy's release to the intervention of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Those released report grim conditions. Food once a day, only pita bread or rice. Most kept in complete darkness for weeks, their eyes needing to readjust to sunlight. To use a bathroom, they had to knock on a door for their captors to take them, sometimes waiting for hours. For sleep, no beds, just rows of plastic chairs tied together, and no showers or other facilities. The harrowing wait goes on for other families. Mika Shani said her mother called Tuesday morning to say her 16-year-old kidnapped brother Amit was not listed among the hostages to be freed. It's been so uh, frustrating that uh, every day, like, you pray, maybe today is the day, maybe, maybe today he's going to get out. About 150 hostages are still believed to be in captivity. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will visit Israel and the West Bank this week. Those are additional stops during his trip to NATO headquarters in Brussels. He will emphasize the increased flow of humanitarian aid to Gaza and the release of all hostages. The Secretary of State will also discuss Gaza's future and an independent Palestinian state. And tech entrepreneur Elon Musk met yesterday with Israeli President Isaac Herzog and some hostage families. The meeting comes amid the alleged rise of anti-Semitic posts on Musk's ex-platform. During the meeting, Musk made comments about the negative effects of propaganda on people. Essentially, these, these, these people have been fed propaganda since they were children. Exactly. Um, and the, it's remarkable what humans are capable of if they're fed falsehoods from when they are children they will think that the murder of innocent people is a good thing that is how much propaganda can affect people's minds musk himself was accused of anti-semitism after agreeing with an ex-post claiming jews were stoking hatred against white people the post caused many advertisers to pause their ads on the ex-platform and drew criticism from the white house Musk responded by saying he was against anti-Semitism and against anything that promotes hate and conflict. At the same time, Israel announced it reached an agreement with Musk over Starlink use. Israel says the satellite network could only operate in Gaza and Israel with their approval. This came after Musk suggested offering Starlink in Gaza following telecommunication blackouts in the city last month. Israel objected to that proposal, saying Hamas would use Starlink for terrorist activities. Musk has not publicly confirmed any deal. Up next, current and former presidents and first ladies will gather today for a private service to honor the late Rosalind Carter. And former President Jimmy Carter is expected to attend. The Senate discussing a new aid bill for Israel, but not all senators agree on what's being proposed. A federal court rejects another bid to keep Trump off the 2024 ballot and find out why federal judge Tanya Chepkin called Trump's motion to subpoena records from the J6 committee a fishing expedition.
Good to have you back. Former President Jimmy Carter will attend the national tribute for former First Lady Rosalind Carter today, according to the Carter Center. Carter is 99 and in hospice care. Hundreds came to honor the former First Lady yesterday at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, former President Bill Clinton, former First Ladies Hillary Clinton, Laura Bush and Michelle Obama are also planning to attend today's service. On Wednesday, Carter's funeral will be held at the Marantha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, before an internment at the family residence. The next few days in Congress may well be the last for New York Congressman George Santos. He says he's expected to be kicked out once the House takes up the expulsion vote as early as this week. And today's Molina Wise Cup has more on this and other high-priority issues on Congress's agenda as the House and Senate return. New York Republican Congressman George Santos is awaiting trial to face 23 federal charges for allegedly defrauding donors and falsifying records. Now the House this week is expected to take up a third attempt to expel him. This failed before twice, although this third try may play out a bit differently. We know of several lawmakers who previously voted to keep him seated who are now flipping. Congressman Santos himself acknowledged that the math isn't looking so good ahead of this week's vote, but he's not willing to go out without a fight. Take a Look at this bit from a three-hour live stream that he had on the platform X and his first public response to this ethics report. I mean, within the ranks of the United States Congress, there's felons galore. Why not? Why not resign before we take the vote? We're going to vote to expel you. Hold on. Hold on. I'm not going to resign. I think I resign. I admit everything that's in that report. We'll hear from Santos again later this week in person at a press conference here at the Capitol set for Thursday. And if he is in fact expelled, this would squeeze Republicans already slim majority in the House, taking them from a four seat margin to a three seat margin. Those impacts could be long lasting if a Democrat is able to flip that seat in a special election. And over in the Senate, leader Chuck Schumer is pushing for a vote on President Biden's aid package to Ukraine, Israel and money for the southern border, although it's clear at this point in time that this package does not have the votes to clear through the entire Congress. All of this while the government funding dispute has only been kicked down the road into early next year, and that means lawmakers have until then to work out and meet key decisions on things such as top line spending numbers or policy priorities. This is a very heavy lift for a Congress as divided as this one. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And negotiations continue over aid for Israel as Congress returns to work this week. The Senate discusses an aid package that includes funding for Ukraine and the border crisis. We must keep working until all the hostages are free. We must continue working here in the Senate to pass, innocent, to pass in humanitarian aid for innocent civilians in Gaza. And we must ensure that Israel has the aid it needs to defend itself against the threat of the terrorist organization Hamas. Apparently our colleagues are considering putting support for Israel on the chopping block unless we promise not to fix the border crisis they helped create. The challenges facing America are connected and the time to address them, each of them, is now. Some progressives want restrictions on aid, with Senator Bernie Sanders asking for Israel to end what he calls indiscriminate bombing in Gaza before sending more money. 
Some conservatives want to see changes to immigration policies here at home before sending more foreign aid to allies like Israel and Ukraine. And also an update on former President Trump's ongoing legal battles. A federal judge in D.C. denied Trump's motion to subpoena records from the J6 committee yesterday, calling it a fishing expedition. And a federal judge in Rhode Island rules on the latest bid to keep Trump off the primary ballot. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about the latest in Trump's lawsuits. D.C. District Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected Trump's efforts to subpoena records from the House J6 committee on Monday. Her seven-page decision called the request too broad and vague and less of a good-faith effort to obtain evidence than a general fishing expedition that attempts to use subpoenas as a discovery device. Chutkin said Trump had not sufficiently justified his request for materials he deemed missing or other documents related to them. Trump's initial motion in October requested purportedly missing materials that the January 6th committee allegedly failed to preserve and transfer to another congressional committee. Chutkin is known for her harsh January 6th-related sentencings and presides over both a criminal and civil case against Trump. The federal judge has refused Trump's request to recuse herself for her prior comments about January 6th protesters and other Trump cases. Trump's legal team called the statements inherently disqualifying and tainting regardless of the case's outcome. The subpoenas requested by Trump targeted the J6 Select Committee and its chairman, Congressman Benny Thompson. Trump also tried to get House Administration Oversight Subcommittee Chairman Barry Loudermilk's cooperation, who accused the J6 Committee in August of failing to provide videos of depositions and interviews and certain communications with the Biden administration. Thompson says all required official records were turned over, with the exception of some videos that weren't used in the J6 hearings. A federal district court in Rhode Island has rejected another bid to disqualify Trump from candidacy in the 2024 presidential elections. Judge John J. McConnell dismissed a complaint by John Anthony Castro, a lesser-known GOP presidential candidate from Texas, citing an earlier ruling by an appeals court that rejected a similar claim. Castro has filed lawsuits in more than two dozen states over the past few months. Courts in Florida, Colorado, New Hampshire, Minnesota, and Michigan have dismissed them. Trump's spokesperson Stephen Chung touted the ruling as a victory for Trump's 2024 campaign, saying he remains undefeated in beating back the claims, and that Trump believes American voters, not the courts, should decide who wins elections. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The suspect in the shooting of three Palestinian students in Vermont has pleaded not guilty. Police arrested 48-year-old suspect Jason Eaton on Sunday. Mr. Eden has now been arraigned and charged with triple attempted murder, charges that carry the potential for life sentences. This case remains the top priority of the Burlington Police Department. The investigation will continue, as will our collaboration with state and federal partners, to give our prosecutors the strongest case possible and to ensure that Mr. Eden is held fully accountable for his actions. Eaton pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted second-degree murder. He is currently being held without bail. The three victims are 20-year-old college students of Palestinian descent. Two are U.S. citizens, while the third is a legal resident. All three remain hospitalized. President Biden Monday released a statement on the shooting saying there is absolutely no place for violence or hate in America, period. No person should worry about being shot at while going about their daily lives. The FBI is investigating the shooting. So far, law enforcement have not said whether the three men were targeted because of their ethnicity. And before we head into the break, here are some latest headlines. 
A judge ruled yesterday a University of North Carolina student is unfit to stand trial. The student is charged with fatally shooting his faculty advisor back in August. A Superior Court judge in Raleigh said two separate mental evaluations found the suspect likely has untreated schizophrenia. The judge ruled yesterday that Tylee Chi will be committed to a hospital for a psychological treatment. We have dramatic new video of a state trooper's response to a fire that engulfed a bus carrying high school band members. The crash happened on November 14th in the central part of Ohio. The crash killed three students, two parent chaperones, and a teacher who were on the bus. At least 18 people were also hurt in the five-vehicle crash. Investigators with the Highway Patrol say a semi-truck hit the bus and triggered the chain reaction crash. The National Transportation Safety Board is still investigating the incident. Coming up, unexplained death cases reported from China. Is COVID-19 back? The country now grappling with a mysterious pneumonia outbreak resulting in fatigue, fever and alleged fatalities. An unexplained wave of pneumonia is hitting China, rapidly spreading through the population. We speak to an expert to get the details on this new epidemic when we come back. I'm Stephanie Sakal in Los Angeles, and we are NTD News. Good to have you back. More deaths are being reported in China as the country grapples with an unexplained pneumonia wave. What was initially thought to be a concern limited to children now spreading rapidly among adults. Beijing urged hospitals nationwide to extend service hours and set up more clinics to cope with the surge. Is this a resurgence of COVID-19 or is something more mysterious at play? Here's the latest on what's happening. Lung inflammation and high fevers. A mysterious acute pneumonia outbreak continues to sweep through China. But the country's top health body claims it can handle the spike in sickness without giving further details on the true scope of the infections. We spoke with a local resident in Beijing who hinted at a surge in death during the ongoing spike. We altered the resident's voice to protect her identity. Last month, one of my brothers died of lung infection. I buried him last week on the 18th. I arrived at Ba Baoshan crematorium before 7 o'clock. I only got the ashes back after 9.05. So you tell me how many people have died. Long line, isn't it? Exactly. How long would it take to pick the ashes up? Five minutes to pick up an urn. News of undiagnosed pneumonia cases among kids started to emerge on Chinese social media back in August. By September, reports from inside China suggested people were dying, alleging many had shown symptoms of lung inflammation. Former Chinese journalist Zhao Lanjian told NTD what he learned from internal sources. I received this information from someone about children dying. A teacher asked a father in a chat group why his daughter didn't come to school. The father said, I'm very sorry, I'm so busy and confused. My child couldn't come to school anymore because she died of pneumonia last night. On top of that, many social media posts also share news about family members passing away from the outbreak. In one post, a mother revealed that her nine-month-old baby died of mycoplasma pneumonia. And in this video shared online, a man from northern China shares that he was tested for five different pathogens. Amid the wave of illnesses, Chinese authorities are pushing residents to mask up. 
practice social distancing and stay at home. A major hospital in Beijing has already set up a makeshift clinic to cope with mounting demand for treatment. Such facilities are most known for large-scale medical isolation tactics used during the COVID-19 pandemic in China. Beijing insists the chaos is not caused by a new virus and denies the possibility of COVID-19 mutations. Instead, health officials have pinned the rise mostly on the mycoplasma pneumonia virus, though clinical reports say mycoplasma infections typically don't require hospitalization. China responded to the World Health Organization's request for data about the undiagnosed pneumonia, saying the surge is linked to common illnesses. South Korea has reported that mycoplasma pneumonia cases in its children doubled in November. France has reported similar increases. And starting next month, Japan will require some travelers from China and five other countries to take tuberculosis or TB tests before entering Japan. TB exhibits similar lung infections to the undiagnosed pneumonia. So how worried should we actually be? We're bringing in Dr. Sean Lin. He's a former U.S. Army microbiologist, a professor of biomedical sciences at Feitian College, and a member of the Committee on Present Danger China. Good morning. It's really good to see you. Um, obviously very equipped to talk about this here. So let's start with the situation in China. What do you know about what's happening now? Uh, good morning, Evelyn. Um, thank you for inviting me. So right now, I think the situation in China uh, is very worrisome. And so many cities uh, from North Beijing, Tianjin, all the way down to uh, Shenzhen, uh, near Guangzhou, uh, near Hong Kong area, many of the cities you see the children's hospital is way overcrowded for so many children got infected. And many of the children have uh, high fevers, and many even have to enter ICU. Some have white lung syndrome. And some even have to go through dangerous uh, lung washing procedures. And we don't know how many uh, children die in this process, but definitely from some of the uh, stories, personal witness, uh, the people post on the internet, definitely there are some kids uh, dying in this process. Mm -hmm. So I think the situation is very worrisome and it's spreading so fast. Um, about, about three months ago, actually, you heard about this uh, outbreak in Shenyang, in northeast China, and now so many cities is, you know, have a, a huge spike at this moment. So I uh, think the right. world, whole world need to pay attention to the situation. So you say three months ago was the first time we heard about it. So what's interesting is the WHO said no unusual pathogens have been found, but in the statement they released on their website, it seems that it's based on information from Chinese authorities and their networks in China. Um, I want to know from you, what do you make of that? I think um, for WHO or even uh, all international organizations or governments to deal with the Chinese communist regime, the fundamental principle should be distrust and verify, not trust and verify. I think uh, the COVID and even the SARS outbreak in 2003 uh, have you know, taught us huge lessons in the past. So this time, the Chinese Communist Party still not telling the truth situations, not telling truth to the Chinese people as well to the international world. And even now, like in China, only some of the cities will uh, report a total number of how many people may be getting infected. But can you trust the number? And do you know how well the you know, multiplex testing has been done in China? You have no idea. And what is most peculiar is why Chinese people are not entitled to this data. And only under WHO's pressure, the Chinese government released some data to WHO and not even to the public. Mm -hmm. So 
we don't know uh, what Chinese government is hiding at this moment. But from their narratives, from their uh, press release, from their uh, health commission, you can see pretty much they portray this whole situation as a, a, like a spike for respiratory infections during uh, winter season. A little bit uh, unusual, uh, the spike may be high, but they are not treated as severe as it needed. And it's, you know, it's definitely not a regular season. And it's also even different from the last winter season where you see both COVID, uh, ISV and flu. And this time, the Chinese government adding so many new pathogens into this uh, situation. It, they talk about uh, microplasma pneumonia and also human metanumovirus and many other pathogens and Chinese government indicating that they have also uh, spike in this season. But we haven't seen any real data yet. So that's mm -hmm. why I think the Chinese government still hiding the situation. So if we look back, at, I think there is no debate that COVID-19 certainly was a lesson. So if we compare this um, now to the beginning of COVID-19, the COVID-19 outbreak, how comparable do you think the situa situation is right now? Are you able to draw parallels also in how, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is reacting to all of this? Yeah, I see the statement from the WHO uh, scientists talk about uh, based on Chinese government data that uh, uh, the current situation is not as high as even in 2018 or 2019 uh, winter seasons. Uh, but I think this is based on the uh, Chinese government provided the data. We don't know the exact number at this moment because uh, I think during the COVID, Chinese government have learned that they can, you know, uh, portray uh, the whole situation very different than the general public have perceived. Mm -hmm. They can manipulate the data. They can tell the hospital system to provide data uh, in a way that matching the Chinese Health Commission. So basically, ask them to manipulate the data. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I don't think it's very easy to compare at this moment. Um, but what is most uh, fundamental issue right now is all the narrative the Chinese government provided cannot explain why so many young kids have severe disease like white lungs. And, and how many kids die. We don't know about this situation. Mm -hmm. If you're just using regular, um, uh, like a winter outbreak of different uh, common respiratory pathogen, like ISV, like a, a human metanumovirus, like rhinovirus, this cannot explain it. Even uh, a, a huge spike of flu season cannot explain this situation. So to me, the most peculiar one, uh, I think, is that Chinese government did not uh, report the how many people got COVID infected? Because COVID infection has never left China. So my prediction is that this is uh, another wave of COVID uh, uh, infection outbreak spreading widely in China. That's why it spread out so fast now. And on top of it, there are other virus pathogens or bacterial infections. So there are in uh, we we know there was a synergistic effect if you have. For example, uh, respiratory syncytial virus infection with uh, human metanumovirus. And during COVID, we know if you, if you got both COVID and also a microplasma infection, you can get more severe symptoms. There are these kind of synergy infection, but uh, this time it's not just simply due to common respiratory pathogen. Mm. There must be COVID, uh, like another huge wave in China right now, but it's government not right. telling the truth. Very, very interesting insights um, from a medical level as well, and a very um, concerning also at, um, looking at the pace that it spreads over there. So thank you so much, Dr. Sean Lin, for providing these insights.
You're welcome. UN ambassadors from the U.S. and North Korea verbally sparred at the Security Council yesterday. The heated discussions centered on North Korea's first spy satellite launch and the reasons for growing tensions between the two countries. The DPRK claims it's uh, acting in self-defense, but the self-defense uh, really does not stand here as the U.S. and ROK military exercises, as you know, are routine and they're defensive in nature. And we intentionally reduce risk and pursue transparency by announcing the exercises in advance, including the dates and the activities, unlike the DPRK. North Korea's envoy claimed the U.S. was threatening use of a nuclear weapon and therefore has a right to develop and possess similar weapons. North Korea has been under U.N. sanctions for its ballistic missile and nuclear programs since 2006. This includes a ban on the development of ballistic missiles. The North Korean leader Kim Jong-un claims the spy satellite has taken photos of the White House, the Pentagon and U.S. aircraft carriers. So far, North Korea has not released any of these images yet. And coming up, e-commerce giant Amazon is set to become one of the largest delivery businesses in the U.S., rivaling major competitors like UPS and FedEx. Following historic spending during Black Friday, consumers continue the spending trend during Cyber Monday. Google is cleaning up inactive accounts and is set to delete old ones. Find out what you need to do if you want to keep your old accounts coming up. Welcome back. As you can see, joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss Amazon. According to the Wall Street Journal, the e-commerce giant now has the biggest delivery business in the U.S. by parcel volume. Amazon is taking the crown from FedEx and UPS. So Don, um, when did this actually happen? Well, uh, in I think this, uh, according to the journal uh, at least, uh, Amazon surpassed UPS uh, in parcel volume uh, in 2022, so last year. And when it comes to FedEx, I think uh, Amazon surpassed them in 2020, uh, about two, three years ago. And the gap is only set to widen this year as well uh, in 2023. And this is citing internal Amazon data, and it was reviewed by uh, sources uh, that are unnamed. Um, and the biggest parcel service uh, is still uh, USPS, actually, and it's holding the title. Um, but in, in terms of how much Amazon uh, delivered uh, ahead of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, uh, it's somewhere around 4.8 billion packages, wow. billion. Uh, so that's a roughly 13.5% increase from last year. So it seems like Amazon is doing pretty well here. Yeah, doing well. Well, we saw their stock went up about 0.7% after the announcement that they passed up FedEx and UPS and that deal with they're between AWS expanding with Salesforce to boost up their AI. But even though their stocks are going up, Warren Buffett seems to be selling it. So it's unclear what he knows that we don't. But we see some record levels here. What is Amazon expected to do this year? 
Well, this year it's going to uh, some, be somewhere around 5.9 billion uh, deliveries by the end of 2023. So we just got a couple more months to go. Uh, but I have to point out some differences uh, in terms of how Amazon uh, deliveries are counted compared to the other two companies and how their deliveries are counted. So Amazon's figures include uh, items that are shipped from beginning to end. And when it comes to UPS and FedEx, uh, it includes uh, deliveries that are handed off to other services like uh, potentially USPS. Um, so another point to point out as well, uh, Amazon um, it hasn't surpassed uh, UPS and FedEx on a global level just yet. Now we're just talking about uh, at the residential uh, level um, deliveries. And uh, an analyst at JP Morgan says as well that uh, Amazon's pickup and delivery coverage also is not this at the same level yet compared to FedEx and UPS. I see. And let's also talk about uh, consumer news. Obviously, yesterday was Cyber, uh, Cyber Monday. We saw record levels, level, record level of spending on Black Friday. But how did it go on Cyber Monday? Well, for Cyber Monday, uh, bargain hunters uh, may have set a spending record as well uh, yesterday, buying over $12 billion of merchandise online. That's according to preliminary estimates from Adobe Digital Insights. Retailers uh, enticed inflation-wary shoppers to spend more on Cyber Monday with push notifications, text messages, and uh, video streaming ads as well, touting heavy discounted items. Uh, and Adobe Analytics says a record amount of holiday shoppers were also on track to use buy now, pay later services for Cyber Monday deals to potentially relieve some stress on their wallets. Yeah, I was part of that $12 billion in sold merchandise as a, as a consumer myself. So yeah, I know it can be very appealing. Now, we saw that Google will be deleting inactive accounts this week. So what do we need to do in order to keep it? Yeah, very good question. So uh, it, it seems like what you have to do is that uh, if you have a Google account and you haven't used it for a while and you want to keep it from disappearing, you should sign in before the end of the week under Google's inactive account policy announced in May, accounts that haven't been used in at least two years could be deleted and accounts deemed inactive will be erased beginning Friday. And Google cites possible security issues as the reason for the policy. Uh, accounts made for organizations like schools or companies though won't be impacted. Other uh, expectations are Google accounts that manage active accounts, accounts containing a gift card balance or those used to purchase Google products, apps, or ongoing subscriptions. Hmm, I think that's important to know because that could potentially mean you lose your documents, your photos, your memories. So that's, uh, thanks for those updates, if, Don Ma. If it wasn't an email, it didn't happen. <laughs> that's right. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. And coming up, a rally calling for freedom in China, held in New York City. We have more on the one-year anniversary of the white paper movement in just a moment.
I'm Steve Lance in the nation's capital, and we are NTD News. Good to have you back. A call for freedom in China coming from the heart of New York City. A group of activists commemorating the one-year anniversary of the White Paper Movement, one of the largest protests calling for democracy in China since the 1989 student movement on Tiananmen Square. And today's Juliet Song has the details. A rally in downtown Manhattan on Saturday marking a special day the one-year anniversary of a major protest in China called the White Paper Movement. I think I haven't seen like a large-scale movement like that in China like in my entire lifetime. People are radicalized in China all over, all across board. Um, it's really rare. I think growing up, I've always thought that it's impossible for China to have another um, movement that's the scale of Tiananmen Square. The movement shocked many at the time. Waves of demonstrations broke out nationwide, condemning Beijing's harsh COVID-19 lockdowns. Protesters held sheets of blank paper while demonstrating, a symbol of censorship. Protesters said they don't want to be slaves, they want to be citizens. Calls like this rang out in China's biggest city, Shanghai. Protesters asked Chinese leader Xi Jinping to step down. Protesters also took direct aim at the ruling communist regime. One of the Shanghai protesters made his way to the U.S., joining this very rally in New York, commemorating the movement. For him, a protest in China was unimaginable. At first, my mind was blank. I didn't think about anything. I was a bit nervous, a bit excited. But afterwards, anger rose up in me after people started chanting. After all, we were put under lockdown for too long. So people were venting and asking for human rights. He recounted how police officers surrounded them. Some people were arrested. Authorities took some people's phones. Police officers later brought a bus here. A number of people were abducted and taken onto the bus. Some were beaten up. Zhao fled China after the protest. He said Beijing's draconian lockdowns were a wake-up call for many Chinese people. They were fed up with suppression. They also saw what happened around them. Some people jumped off buildings. They also saw the blaze that happened in Xinjiang. Many died in the apartment building, so they were pushed to the brink and started resisting Beijing's authoritarian rule. The protests later calmed down. Beijing lifted pandemic restrictions but arrested a number of protesters. Some of them are still in prison today. Rallygoers say it's important to recognize their perseverance and that they're not alone, as there are others overseas fighting for democracy with them. Juliet Song, NTD News. The group also condemned Beijing's abuses of Tibetan and Uyghurs. The regime has been collecting blood samples from Tibetans for better surveillance results. The regime has also detained over one million Uyghurs inside China, a Muslim minority group that lives in the western Xinjiang region. The U.S. says Beijing is committing genocide against them through mass detention and forced sterilization. Incredible. Yeah, well, it's really great that they are able to voice their concerns here in the United States. And, of course, we've seen that 
big protests against the Chinese communist rule, the first in decades. That's right. And it feels like even in the United States, you hear about it more now. People are, I think, and that's the tip of the iceberg, right? I feel like the COVID, the COVID deaths were just, they were not able to hide them anymore. People were screaming out of their, out of their apartments. Um, and, you know, that's just a tip of the iceberg. Like I said, like the CCP opening up dams, flooding entire um, villages without warning, or, you know, the housing crisis that just showed so much of what um, uh, the house of cards economy, for lack of a better word. So, yeah, I think that really, like like the gentleman said, opened people's eyes. Yeah, and like you were mentioning to Dr. Sean Lin, how COVID was seen as a wake-up call. Mm. And now in China, of course, that if that weren't enough for the international community to realize that the authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party is obviously infringing on human rights. Of course, we see that when their people's doors are bolted shut and welded during the lockdowns. Right. So it's good that people are finding their voices um, against this issue. So uh, we're moving on also. P police in Michigan engage in a opposite of a high-speed chase. This after they received a call about a stolen construction vehicle. The police dash cam shows the suspect, a 12-year-old boy, leading police on a chase. The juvenile drove the vehicle at around 15 to 20 miles per hour in a Michigan neighborhood. Look at that. I mean, that's, that's not something you see every day. That's a 12-year-old? <laughs> wow. Oh. The 12-year-old boy hid around 10 parked vehicles during the incident. The Ann Arbor Police Department says the chase eventually ended with his arrest. Hopefully no one was hurt. I mean, that's that's not a toy. And well, no, although it, he can mistake it for one for sure. Looks fun. I'm just glad nobody really seriously got hurt. Yeah, good thing the police were there to respond. Yeah, well, today. Uh, so now we are heading into a short break. After one minute, we'll be back. So stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to MTD. Good morning, here are top stories. A new ray of hope for families whose loved ones are still being held hostage in Gaza. Progress in talks for extending the truth. Will Israel keep pursuing ceasefire agreements until all hostages are released? How involved is the Biden administration in the negotiations? A council protecting human rights weighs in. The holiday shopping season is filled with deals, but also with just as many scams. We give you some tips to help keep safe online. A young baker overcomes his own personal obstacles to create his own cheesecake business. Stay tuned to find out more.
This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today's Tuesday, November 28th, and today's top news. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a two-day extension of the temporary truce in the Gaza Strip. Israel says Hamas will release 10 more hostages each day over the next two days under the agreement. Israeli officials have notified families whose relatives are on a list of hostages to be released today. The deal also allows more aid to flow into Gaza. An Israeli spokesperson stated that before the latest releases, there were 184 hostages in Gaza. These included 14 foreigners and 80 Israelis with dual nationality. Israel says it will continue to eliminate Hamas with full force. That's after it becomes evident that no more hostages will be released under the present agreement. A senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said the release of three-year-old twins highlights the disturbing nature of the enemy Israel is facing. He added that Hamas could determine the duration of the humanitarian pause by releasing 10 hostages daily. He says putting pressure on them to continue releasing hostages will ensure the pause continues. Watch. The fear that Hamas has of Israel resuming combat actually is an incentive for them to continue with the pause because they know that when Israel goes back to the campaign against Hamas, we'll be destroying their military infrastructure, we'll be uh, uh, taking out and eliminating their senior leadership, uh, their senior command. They will be on the receiving end of massive blows from the IDF. And that motivates them now to keep this time out, this humanitarian pause to go longer. So actually the two goals of destroying Hamas militarily and at the same time getting hostages out, they complement each other. No American hostages were released from Gaza yesterday. Two American women abducted by Hamas terrorists on October 7th were not among those freed. The White House previously said three Americans were expected to be among the 50 hostages that Hamas would release during the four-day pause. Only one, four-year-old Abigail Dan, has been freed. With the truce extended two more days, the White House says there is still a chance the two women could be released on Tuesday or Wednesday. NSC spokesman John Kirby says Hamas will benefit from the pause in fighting and restock and rearm. He says that's a risk Israel and others are willing to take to get hostages freed. Kirby says between seven and nine Americans are still held hostage in Gaza, but the exact number is not known. We do believe that the majority of the ones that are left and we believe held hostage are males. Um, and right now, Hamas is only willing to release women and children. So it could be some time here before we can uh, start to see progress on the other hostages. And to learn more about the extended pause, we're bringing in live on the show Gerard Felitti, a senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Gerard, thank you for making the time today. At this rate, do you expect Israel to pursue ceasefire agreements until all hostages are released? Well, thank you for having me. It, I think it's it's very clear that Israel is doing what it can to return all the hostages back to Israel to make sure that they're all free. Uh, I think that, as was stated, it depends on whether Hamas is genuine in releasing hostages. Israel probably will not tolerate uh, pauses or delays in order for Hamas to reposition and rearm. So Israel will continue extending the ceasefire so long as hostages are released. And how is it possible to prevent Hamas from rearming during a ceasefire? 
Quite simply, it's not. Part of it has to do with the materials that are coming in through the Rafah border crossing. There is supposed to be humanitarian aid, but quite frankly, we are not certain that there are no weapons that are coming through. The other part of it is Hamas has stockpiled a considerable amount of weapons within Gaza, some of them not really accessible. This pause gives them time to find those weapons and redistribute them to the front lines where the fighting is taking place. So, Gerard, the U.N. chief is welcoming the pause in that it's going to bring aid into Israel, into Gaza from the outside. Now, do you think that that aid is going to go to good use or it's just going to be stolen by Hamas? Historically, since Hamas took power, we have seen very little of the aid that's come in actually go to Palestinian people. We have seen a lot of it taken by Gaza. We have seen supplies used for soldiers and for fighting purposes. We have seen food proportionally given to soldiers and and terrorists rather than to the civilian population. So there is a legitimate concern that a lot of this aid is not actually going to make it to the people that most need it. So how big of a role is the Biden administration playing in the push for this extended ceasefire, considering that there still are about nine Americans in captivity? Well, the Biden administration is playing a considerable role. We see the CIA director is back in Qatar uh, discussing ceasefire with his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts. The Biden administration is very interested in maintaining uh, the American presence in the Middle East and protecting Israel from this war broadening. So we are very interested in not escalating the situation and in getting as many hostages back as we can. Right. And what are the IDF going to be doing during this extended ceasefire? Well, the IDF is going to be doing the same thing that any military does, which is rest and resupply. They will reposition their forces as well and reevaluate their strategies moving forward. This humanitarian pause, while it's also good for hostage release, really gives both armies a chance to reconsider their tactics and prepare for the upcoming battles once this humanitarian pause ends. And on an international scale, how is this truce agreement affecting Israel's image? Well, I think Israel's image has been very negatively affected by media propaganda that portrays it as an aggressor. That's not likely to change with a humanitarian pause. This is something that we've seen as a systemic problem with global media and global political figures. So there will not be much of a change. However, in the public eye, Israel is doing the right thing in advocating and doing everything it can to possibly get its, its citizens back. And this is seen as a good thing throughout the world. And Gerard, we know that taking hostages is a war crime, and we know that Israel has set out to eradicate Hamas completely. But as a legal counsel, is there anything that can be done legally for the families that have had members held in captivity? Well, legally, these these families can pursue claims against Hamas in different courts around the world. They can go after the banks that finance Hamas. They can go after the companies that do business with them. Uh, they can put pressure, uh, you know, legal pressure to dismantle these organizations by cutting off their funding. Uh, if, if they file lawsuits, they may advance the cause of defeating Hamas in the legal arena, not just in the military one. Fascinating insight from you, Gerard Feliti, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare Project. Thank you. Thank you. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken will visit Israel and the West Bank this week. Those are additional stops during his trip to NATO headquarters in Brussels. He will emphasize the increased flow of humanitarian aid to Gaza and the release of all hostages. The Secretary of State will also discuss Gaza's future and an independent Palestinian state. 
Coming up, Argentina's new president setting into motion his ambitious agenda, including a new economic policy. The holiday shopping season is filled with deals, but also with many scams. We give you some tips to help keep you safe online. And a young baker overcomes his own personal obstacles to create his own cheesecake business. Stay tuned to hear his credible, incredible story. Welcome and good to have you back. Former President Jimmy Carter will attend the national tribute for former First Lady Rosalind Carter today, according to the Carter Center. Carter is 99 and in hospice care. Hundreds came to honor the former First Lady yesterday at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, former President Bill Clinton, former First Ladies Hillary Clinton, Laura Bush and Michelle Obama are also planning to attend today's service. On Wednesday, Carter's funeral will be held at the Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, before an internment at the family residence. And Moving on to Argentina, Argentine President-elect Javier Milei is the, in the U.S. and will meet with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and other administration officials today. Milei's economic advisors are set to meet with senior Treasury officials to go over the President-elect's economic priorities. Meetings with officials from the International Monetary Fund are also taking place, focused on Milei's efforts to dollarize Argentina and shut its central bank. That's part of his ambitious agenda that clinched his victory in the recent election. But how realistic are his goals? A reporter from the Epic Times asked economists to weigh in. Argentina's president-elect Javier Milei says it's non-negotiable when it comes to shutting down the country's central bank and switching to the U.S. dollar. Despite speculation the plan could bring ruin, economists told the Epic Times it was completely feasible. Daniel Lacall, the chief economist at Tresses, says not only is dismantling Argentina's central bank plausible, it has to be done as soon as possible. In order to have a regulator that is fully independent and that does not have the ability to print and monetize all and every deficit without any regard for the stability of the currency. Lacall called it hypocritical to say Malay is going to bring economic collapse. He says that's because Argentina's economy was already destroyed by the previous government's socialism. All of those people that are sending these alarm bells about the arrival of Mr. Millet, who is basically just showing the reality of the economy, that the uh, peso is a failed currency, that the central bank is, in is bankrupt, in negative net reserves, and to uh, implement pro-market free market uh, policies and I find it amazing that there are people out there saying that this is going to be, be very negative for the economy. Same people, by the way, that said absolutely nothing for years when the Peronist left was destroying the economy in real time. Peter St. Ange, an economic research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, says Argentina was so far in the hole, things will absolutely be better a year from now. 
We can look at somebody like El Salvador, for example, which, you know, again, has a right populist president. There was a, a, a lot of doomsayers there. Uh, there was a lot of hostility from international organizations. Uh, the left-wing media just went after him uh, constantly. And he has just, I mean, completely transformed El Salvador. It's safe. It's, it's uh, politically stable. It's economically stable. It's like, it's like halfway to Singapore. But one hurdle St. Ange says Malay will have to overcome is government spending, despite its driving force behind inflation. But the issue is 30% of Argentinians work for the government. Another 30% of them are on welfare. Neither of those groups want to cut the government spending, which is what's driving the inflation in the first place. So the amazing thing is that with 60% of the population clearly incentivized to keep the system running, he managed to actually win an election. This is kind of the problem with socialism in general is that not only does it take things over and hand them to the government, but you know, in the process, it ends up hiring millions of people to work for the government. St. Ange says a lot of central banks are propping each other up in an almost cartel-like system, and that a country like Argentina can piggyback on the U.S. dollar with the kind of central bank located in Washington. Malay's biggest challenge is that he doesn't have a majority in Congress, but at the same time, dollarization has been such a success and it's been a relatively mainstream concept in enough countries that I think there is a chance that, that he can actually pull it off. Malay is set to take office on December 10th at a time when Argentina's inflation is approaching 150%. And Amazon is set to become one of the largest delivery services in the U.S. by parcel volume. Earlier, we spoke to Don Ma, host of NTD Business, to talk about the widening gap between Amazon and its competitors. The gap is only set to widen this year as well uh, in 2023. And this is citing internal Amazon data and it was reviewed by uh, sources uh, that are unnamed. Um, and the biggest parcel service uh, is still uh, USPS, actually, and it's holding the title. Um, but in, a, in terms of how much Amazon uh, delivered uh, ahead of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, uh, it's somewhere around 4.8 billion packages, wow. billion. Uh, so that's a roughly 13.5% increase from last year. So it seems like Amazon is doing pretty well here. Yeah, doing well. Well, we saw their stock went up about 0.7% after the announcement that they passed up FedEx and UPS and that deal with their, between AWS expanding with Salesforce to boost up their AI. But even though their stocks are going up, Warren Buffett seems to be selling it. So it's unclear what he knows that we don't. But we see some record levels here. What is Amazon expected to do this year? Well, this year it's going to uh, some, be somewhere around $5.9 billion. Uh, deliveries by the end of 2023. So we just got a couple more months to go. Uh, but I have to point out some differences uh, in terms of how Amazon uh, deliveries are counted compared to the other two companies and how their deliveries are counted. So Amazon's figures include uh, items that are shipped from beginning to end. And when it comes to UPS and FedEx, uh, it includes uh, deliveries that are handed off to other services like uh, potentially USPS. Um, so another point to point out a, as well, uh, Amazon um, hasn't surpassed uh, UPS and FedEx on a global level just yet. Now we're just talking about uh, at the residential uh, level. Thanks for those updates, if, Don Ma. If it wasn't an email, it didn't happen. 
That's right. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. The holiday shopping season continues as scammers are working overtime to rip off eager shoppers. According to the Better Business Bureau, scams are not as easy to spot as in previous years. We have some tips to help you stay safe while shopping online. The holiday shopping season is in full swing and those websites hosting online sales are also a hot spot for scammers. Unfortunately, scammers follow us around like legitimate marketers do. The Better Business Bureau says scammers are working overtime to rip off eager consumers and it's getting harder and harder for consumers to spot those scams. If you think about the way people online shop, most of the time they're on a device. They're not on a laptop or a desktop computer where they might have a better visual field of some of those red flags when it comes to a fake website. The National Retail Federation is forecasting that online and non-store sales will climb as high as 9% this year. And scammers are taking advantage of that growing trend. The BBB has these five tips to help you avoid becoming a victim. Number one, research before clicking buy. Google the company name with the word scam, reviews, and complaints to see what other customers are saying. Usually starts with, I saw an ad for XYZ, and then they have no confirmation of a purchase. Which brings us to number two, buy from legit websites. The BBB says scammers often mimic the URL of a popular retailer to get you to buy counterfeit or fake items. Three, don't be fooled by fake goods on social media. We've also seen some influencers have their videos hijacked by scammers trying to sell the product on a fake website. Four, don't click on links from random texts or emails. And finally, the BBB says if the sale or promotion seems too good to be true, it probably is. Good tips. And next, we delve into some sweet delights. A young autistic man from Georgia did not let his disability stop him from creating a successful business, baking cheesecakes. The results are absolutely delicious, so let's take a look. 19-year-old Jack Leach is not a man of many words, but his talents speak for themselves. He seemed like a normal child. He um, did everything a normal baby would do. Uh, but as he as he aged, we noticed that he wasn't starting to talk as early as uh, most of the other children his age. He had we, we first thought maybe he might be deaf, but he passed all of his hearing tests and he was later diagnosed with what they call apraxia. His condition, which is a type of communication disorder, has not stopped Jack from pursuing what he loves doing. Jack can shoot hoops on the basketball court better than most of his classmates. He's also won two gold medals at the Special Olympics in his home state of Georgia. More importantly, though, he's also a very talented baker. He won a local baking contest for best dessert four years in a row. And he's pretty renowned for his delicious cheesecakes, a skill taught to him by his grandmother when he was around 14. He likes to bake other things besides cheesecakes, you know, a lot of out-of-the-box stuff like brownies and, and, and cakes and stuff like that. Uh, but he made his first uh, cheesecake with my mom, uh, uh, Donna. Um, and after he made his cheesecake, he found a, a set of cheesecake pans on Amazon. And they were you know, red and black like the Georgia Bulldogs or where we're at. Um, so my mom bought him this set of cheesecake pans. And he uh, just kept baking cheesecakes at home. Jack started making cheesecakes almost every evening in his home kitchen, with his dad, Brent, helping him with prepping. Initially, they began donating the cakes to his school. 
But as the sweet delights grew in popularity, Jack soon started selling them to teachers and staff at his school on a coffee cart to raise money for disabled students. With the help of his dad, his business, Jack's Cheesecakes, was born. Uh, the best thing that's ever happened to us. Um, it, so it's just been it's just been Jack and I for the most part. Um, my uh, my wife actually just joined the team a few weeks ago, so we're now a, a three-person team instead of a two-person team. Now, with 10 selling locations across Georgia, Jack's Cheesecakes has grown by leaps and bounds since it first opened five years ago. Brent has quit his job to work full-time with Jack, and the family now also uses a commercial kitchen, which they rent by the hour. We actually just purchased our first uh, concession trailer. Uh, for the first four years, we've been, you know, lugging a big tent around and uh, tables and, and setting up and breaking down every day. Uh, but now we actually have a pull behind trailer uh, where the, we have four uh, chest freezers in there to keep the cheesecakes frozen. Now with the momentum they gathered and the ongoing success of Jack's Cheesecakes, Brent says he's hopeful they can move into their very own kitchen within a couple of months. Awesome. That grew pretty fast. Ten locations now. Wow. Yeah, what a great entrepreneur. And, you know, overcoming that health adversity, it just goes to show you that that tenacity is one factor that can lead to growing a, a business from scratch. Yeah, and it seems like it, uh, it was born out of a... Um good cause as well. They were raising money for uh, disabled, disabled children in the beginning, right? Yeah. And well, that cheesecake looked really good. You know, I make pies. Mm, I was going to say cheesecake is, our, is one of my favorites. So. Yeah. Well, New York's famous for it. Oh, that's right. I'm in the right place for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We are wrapping our show up our show right now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.